Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Radiant Life. And if you're a first-time guest, welcome to church. You chose a good Sunday to come. Every Sunday is a good Sunday to come. It's a horrible way to say that. Um, if you're a regular, welcome. Welcome, welcome. Good to see everyone here this morning. Uh, it's going to get chilly tonight, so stay warm, all right? Uh, bundle up. Well, we're uh, wrapping up our Christmas series together this morning titled, She Shouldn't Be Here. And we've been looking in the Newer Testament at a book called Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. And Matthew is a disciple of Jesus. He has followed Jesus. He has seen Jesus do his teachings, his miracles. Uh, for about two and a half, three years of ministry life, Matthew's there. And Matthew is going to write the letter that we have called Matthew to us and the way he starts the greatest story ever told about who Jesus is is he begins with a boring genealogy. It's boring. We never start anything with genealogy. You never introduce yourself by genealogy. We often would think if you're going to tell the greatest story ever told, you would get something gripping, something attention-grabbing just from the get-go so you have your audience there with you. But this is the way Matthew begins, and we've been looking at it for the previous three weeks, and we'll wrap it up this week. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was what, friends? Tamar, a female. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was who? Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was who? Ruth, two more females, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been who? Uriah's wife, also known as Bathsheba, another female. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asa. Now for fun, we're going to go to the next verse. I want you all to begin to say the genealogy together, out loud, so you can butcher the names, not me, okay? This is going to be great. I'll start us, and then you guys just follow in, all right? You ready? Out loud together. Asa, the father of... 
Hey, give yourself a hand. That was tough, right? Good job. Good job. And there's five more verses still of these names until you get to finally Jesus. And it's long. But this series, we've been looking at the oddity of the way Matthew begins to share who Jesus is with the genealogy. And the oddity of genealogy in the first century world is you never mention women. Women were property. They were viewed as property. Women, you had no standing in the first century world. This is why, again, women gravitated towards Jesus because Jesus elevated the status of women. So women were drawn to him because they lived in a culture that deemed them only as, you're only a man's property. That's it. You have no rights. And so they just gravitate towards Jesus. And you never mention a woman in your genealogy. But Matthew decided to start the greatest story ever told by genealogy and including these five women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah's wife, which is Bathsheba, and Mary. Mary we won't get to in this series. We all, if, even if you're not a Christian, you know Mary. You know the Christmas story probably, Mary and Joseph and the little baby. But Mary, just to give you a little insight, Mary's about 13, 14. Teenage girl. Pregnant. In a culture where women have no status and she's not married. Imagine what Mary must have experienced. This is why you read, and I'm not going to get to the whole thing this morning, but this is why when Joseph finds out his soon-to-be wife is pregnant, Scripture tells us, the writers say, that he's going to put her away, referring to divorce. Because he doesn't know why she's pregnant. And even though they're not married, divorce is still allowable because they have the agreement between parents they're going to get married. And divorces, you can get out of that agreement. But this is why the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and said, hey, no, don't fear. Take Mary to be your wife. It's okay. So Joseph does. But we've looked at Rahab. We've looked at Tamar. We've looked at Ruth. Today we're going to look at Uriah's wife this morning. Uriah's wife, known as Bathsheba. So turn with me to the Older Testament in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's the 10th book in the biblical text. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And if uh, you don't have one, it'll be on the screen for you. You've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The first five books of the Bible is known as the law. This is what everything hangs on as far as the Israelites, the Jewish people. This is their governing, how they govern themselves. This is how they act in every day in life is those first five. It's also known as the Pentateuch. And by the age of 14 in the Jewish educational system, you have those first five books memorized by heart by the age of 14 years old. That's just their system. So much more in-depth than our system. We struggled just with a Bible verse. But they have five books memorized by the age of 14 years old. You think they have some importance on God's Word in their life? And here we are. Then you got Joshua about the Israelites coming into the land of Canaan, in present-day Israel, conquering. You have Joshua, judges, all about a story of the rulers that they have that are known as judges. And they've had good ones, they have bad ones. And then you go to about a story about a girl named Ruth, who's in the genealogy of Jesus, four short, chap four short, tra four short chapters in the genealogy and Ruth's story. And then you come to 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 
chapter 11. And let me, let me give you context because something big is going on before we jump into verse 11. You have two really big people who are kind of angst against each other. You've got the Israelites. Let me hear you say Israelites. You have the, um, 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 the Ammonites. Let me hear you say Ammonites. These two groups of people are trying to coexist together. And the Ammonite king has died. So on the throne for the Israelites is a guy by the name of King David. This is David that you may have heard of with the slingshot killing Goliath. He has grown up to be the king of Israel. And he's on the throne and he gets word that the king of the Ammonites have died. So he's going to send a delegation just to console them, to say, hey, we are so sorry that he's died. So he sends a group of men to the new king, which is the king's son now, the, old, the king that died. His son's now on the throne. And they go, and this new king humiliates them. In fact, the guys during this time wear beards. Really good manly ones, ones that I don't, can't grow. <laughs> really good ones. In fact, they probably would look like this. Manly beards, you know, just beards. And the new Ammonite king says, why are you here? And he begins to humiliate them. He shaves off half their beard. Like, can you imagine watching Duck Dynasty, watching the Robinsons, and all of a sudden in an episode, they have half their face shaved. You'd be like, what is this? And that's what the king does. And in fact, and this is awesome, it says in 2 Samuel chapter 10, um, he seized David's envoys, this is his people he went to console, uh, shaved off half of each man's beard and cut their garments at their buttocks. Like, <laughs> that's pretty disgraceful. Like, I don't know how much else you could, how much more disgrace you can experience. And David, sitting on his throne in Israel, gets word of this. So he's going to gather another group of men to go now be with these guys that have half their beards and their buttocks showing now. And he sends them out. And the new Ammonite king gets word of another group coming. He thinks David is declaring war, so he hires mercenaries. We're going to hire mercenaries. We're going to war. Well, then King David finds out that they hired mercenaries, and David gathers his troops saying, fine, we got to go to war. I went to just console them, but they have declared war. And they fought for about a year. And we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 with this. In the what, friends? In the spring, immediately the writer is telling us time. Why? Because in the spring, all wars begin in the spring. And here's why. You have two seasons in Israel. You have the rainy season and the what? What do you think? Dry season. Spring is the beginning of the dry season, so now the roads aren't flooded and you can move armies. Also in the spring, it's not harvest time yet. So now as the king, you can gather as many men in your whole kingdom to go to war because they're not in the fields harvesting yet. So the writer says, in the spring, at the time when kings go, to, go off to war, Note that. That is so key in a minute. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They're ready for war. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rahabah. But, and let's read the rest of this verse together. David remained in Jerusalem. Awesome. 
And the writer has baited us right away. One of the biggest buts in all of Scripture. But David remained in Jerusalem. Remember at the beginning it says in the springtime, at the time when who? Kings go off to war. Your king is normally your mightiest, one of the mightiest warriors you can get. And we think medieval times when we hear kings and queens, but it's not like that at this time. Because the king in medieval times, he just sits on his throne and commands an army to go out. But back in this time, the king was on the front line of the army battling. Because he's a fierce, mighty warrior. That's who you wanted as your king. He was great. And all of a sudden we're told though, this king remained in Jerusalem. And the writer has baited all of us. Because in my mind, I'm going, let's go to the war. Right? Let's go to see how many heads got chopped off. (laughs) How many people have died. Like, I want to go to this part of the story. But the writer doesn't go there. He says, I want you to all know, though, the king who's supposed to be out there has remained home. And in fact, the writer of a commentary, of the NIV application commentary, says this about that. All the terror of war and the confusion of battle are bracketed out, making way for another kind of terror and confusion. And the writer lets it hang. David's at home. And instead of going back to the war to see what's happening, the writer's going to take us down the line of what happens. Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. Now, back in this time, they have flat roofs. They can do that. They can walk around and all that stuff. We have all these pointed roofs that we can't do. But at any time, the king and the servants can just go up on the palace roof and begin to walk around. A lot of the bathing is happening on top of your roofs as well. You don't have it in your house at this time. And verse 2 continues, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was what, friends? Very beautiful. Extremely descriptive. There's danger. This actually word in the Greek, or I'm sorry, in the Hebrew, this was originally written in Hebrew, the word very means it's an intoxicating, desirable thing. And so the writer's saying there is something about this woman. She's very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. Right? You're the king. Hey, I see this woman bathing. I I want to find out about her. Verse 3. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah, the what, friends? Hittite. Hittite. So here we have what's interesting is the messenger goes and David says, hey, there's a beautiful woman bathing. Go find out about her. Messenger goes. He finds out who this beautiful woman is bathing, comes back to the king and says, king, I'm going to tell you who she is. She's Bathsheba. And then how does he introduce Bathsheba? Genealogy. It's their identity. It's who you are. She's Bathsheba, daughter of Elam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Now this tells you something. Hittites were mercenaries only for King David. That was the group of people. So David hires mercenaries. These aren't just the Israelite army. These are like the special forces. And they're few in number. So King David probably knows, all of biblical scholars believe, King David probably knows who Uriah the Hittite is, the husband of Bathsheba. Because he's the one that hires the mercenaries. 
And that's who she is. The story continues. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Now, we're adults, you know what that is. If you look in the book of Leviticus, which never, ever, if you're going to pick up, if you're going to pick up God's word, never, ever start in the book of Leviticus. Ever. Like, it is, you'll read it and you're like, whoa, start in Mark. I always put people in Mark. Go to the life of Jesus. Mark is 16 chapters. It's the shortest book. Get flow going, thinking you're, you're good. Go to Mark. But Leviticus, they'll tell you what to do with a scab. Like, they will, it's just, that's what their law, this is what they had to follow. And so she's up on the roof, bathing herself from what we all know, once a month. That's, they're following the Leviticus law back in the Old Testament. And that's where she's at. That's why she's up on the roof, bathing. Eight days after her last cycle, she's up there bathing. It says, then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, and let's read this together. I am pregnant. Pregnant. So here you have the introduction of Bathsheba, who's in the lineage of Jesus, having an affair with the king. Now David, King David wants to cover this up. But he knows, yeah, all right, I've got to cover this thing up. This isn't right. So what David does is he, he comes up with a plan. i got a plan. Uh, the Israelite army comes back, and the plan is, Uriah, I'm going to send him home in hopes he sleeps with his wife and then gets her pregnant, and we can just blame the pregnancy, not get her pregnant, she's already pregnant, but blame the pregnancy on that instant. So Uriah comes back, and King David says, hey, go home. Go stay with your wife. And unfortunately that night, Uriah decides to stay with his troops at the palace footgate, at the stairs of the palace. And that's often done because you don't want to be distracted from war. You don't want to go home and deal with the wife and kids. You want to stay focused on your agenda, on your war. You want to stay focused with your men so you don't go home and get distracted. That's why David said, hey, go home. Well, it didn't work. So David's got plan number two. All right. I'll get Uriah drunk. Maybe if I get him drunk, he'll go home, sleep with his wife, and then we can say, hey, that's where the pregnancy came from. So he goes and gets Uriah drunk. Uriah, go home. Go to your wife. Enjoy the night. But Uriah stays with his men at the gates of the palace. So now it's, I got to go to extreme measures. And in fact, this is King David's plan now to cover up this thing. And verse 15 says this. This is David speaking. Put Uriah out in front of the fight where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. I couldn't get him to sleep with his wife. So you know what? Let's just kill him. I'm not going to murder him. I'm just going to orchestrate the murdering of putting him where he needs to be so he dies. They go back to fight the Ammonites. He's on the front line, and all of a sudden, they report back to say, hey, we lost a lot of men in this battle, but King David, I do want to report Uriah has died. And then King David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And that's the introduction of Bathsheba. And we look for the past several weeks, and if you weren't here, let me get caught up. We looked at all these women, and again, you don't mention women. Tamar, incest, 
deceived, um, incest with her father-in-law, deceived her, tricked his, her father-in-law, dressed up as a prostitute. Rahab, what's her profession? Thank you. She's a prostitute in the lineage of this coming king, Jesus. Ruth, a Moabite, an enemy to the Israelites. You're going to come up with a genealogy. You're not including these women in your genealogy. Uriah's wife, an affair with the king and Mary, teenage pregnant girl. These are things you and I cover up, but not Matthew. And one thing all these women have in common is disgrace. A shameful reputation. Hurtful past. Baggage. Unfortunate circumstances surrounding all of them. Yet Matthew decides, I'm going to write the greatest story ever told. I'm going to write about this Jesus. But instead of starting with Jesus, this birth, let me give you a glimpse into his genealogy. Matthew sits there and scribes all these people's names. He says, <laughs> Tamar, that's a good one to include in Tamar, yep, incest and prostitution. Oh, oh man, he goes, oh, I'm going to include Rahab, another prostitute. Oh, this is good. And he begins to just write this list. But why? Why? See, I think we can wrap this whole series up. But I think what Matthew's doing is giving a glimpse into who this coming Messiah is. Before Mary and, and Joseph and Bethlehem, before all that, he's wanting the reader to understand who is this Jesus Christ that comes. And if we can boil it down, I would say this. The good news of Jesus, to wrap this whole series up, the good news of Jesus is not about being what? Turn to your neighbor and say, it's not about being good. Listen, the good news of the coming Messiah, the reason we even have this Christmas season, it's not about being good. It's about experiencing the grace He has to offer. In all your hang-ups, in all your addictions, in everything that you have, this is the good news of who Jesus Christ is. That He came to say, hey, don't clean yourself up because you can't do that alone. Only I can. And God on that day looked down upon his people, his creation, says, I love them to let them remain in all their dirtiness, in all their baggage, in all their brokenness. And he says, I'm coming to send my son Jesus to give them grace like they've never experienced. This is why we call it amazing grace. It's amazing. Because grace is a a gift. Grace is nothing that we do. Nothing that we ever can do. It's not about being good. You can't be good enough. God says, I don't care. It's about experiencing the grace I have to offer you. Right? And, and if you're not a Christian this morning, and you're kicking around the God thing, I don't, I don't know why I'm here. Well, yes, I do. My spouse drug me here. But I, I just don't know about this God thing. And is, is this real? What is this season about? I want to I let you know. You belong here. We welcome you. But this thing about following Jesus is not about being good. 
It's about coming where you are with everything that you have. All your despair, all your baggage, all your sin, all your hurt, all your pain, and God meets you right there. He says, it's my grace. It's my grace. And that's why we celebrate this season. Tracy, you can take your way up. One of my favorite pastors to follow is Andy Stanley. And he says, I'm going to butcher his quote, so it's not a direct quote, it's a sum of his quote. He said something along the lines of, it's really refreshing when we receive grace, when we've messed up in our lives. It's really refreshing to receive grace for other people to say, hey, it's okay, I forgive you, let's, let's get better. It's refreshing, we enjoy that. But it's really disturbing when we have to offer it to others. Because oftentimes we want justice when we've been wrong. We want retaliation. We want payback. That God demonstrates all His grace by sending His Son Jesus for you and for me. It's a gift. It's the greatest gift you can receive this Christmas. It's the grace that God has to offer. And many people in our culture think that Christianity is all about being good. And I've said this before, I think Matthew's getting at transparency. This is why I'm excited for January 8th when we kick off Getting Naked. Because you're going to hear real stories from staff and real stories from you about struggles we go through. Because we all need God's grace. So I ask if you would close your eyes. I'm going to say a prayer for you. For some of us this morning, you can think of all your hurt, you can think of all your pain, and you think, man, God, I haven't been good enough. I'm going to tell you something this morning. He's waiting for you to come. He's right there with all the grace He has to offer. So this morning I want to lead you in a prayer. That the gift of grace is waiting for you. God is reaching down to say, come. So if you've never prayed this, I want you to repeat after me. Just say, Heavenly Father, I can't do life alone. I'm never going to be good, good enough. I messed up. I have my baggage. I have my hurts. I have my shame. Like all those women in your genealogy. But I know you love me. So Father... This morning I put my faith and trust into you. Please forgive me of my sins. Make me whole, make me pure, and clean me. For this Christmas season, I declare I am yours. 
and I surrender my life to you. With all eyes closed still, if there's anyone here this morning who said, I just needed God to clean me, would you please just slip up your hand? I would love to pray for you, with you. Amen. Yes, thank you. Anyone else? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Bless God. Yes, I see your hand. Bless God. Is there anyone else? Yes, thank you. Yes, I see your hand. Thank you. It's about grace. It's not about being good. It's about experiencing this loving God who says, I give you my grace. Father, we thank you for those hands. We thank you for the four hands raised in first service. We thank you for the six this service. God, you are on the move. And we know that we come with brokenness. We know we come with pain. And we know that, God, you're the God that says, bring it all. Bring it all. Because I love you. And I'm sending my son Jesus to clean you from all of that. So, Father, we glorify you. We thank you for this thing called amazing grace. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name. And everyone together said, amen. Ushers, at this time, will you come forward? Can we just give God a hand real quick? Thank you for those lives. If you want to grab your connection card out, now's a great time to grab that out. And if you're a first-time guest, Put your connection card, take it to Radiant Cafe afterwards. We'll give you free drinks on us, just a way to say thanks for worshiping here at Radiant Life. And if you're a guest, sit on your wallet. This is for followers of Jesus who say, hey God, I'm returning back to you. Just that portion you have blessed me with. And this allows us to do ministry. This allows us to minister to those 10 new followers of Jesus, to minister to the kids that who come on stage that one day will be the church. You and I will be long gone, and these kids will be leaving the church. So thank you for your faithful giving. Let me pray one more time, and then as the plate goes, will you stand and we'll sing, This is Amazing Grace. Father, bless both the gift and the giver as we return back a portion to you. Thank you for faithful giving. Thank you that Radiant Life can be a church where people are God first. And we thank you for that. And we thank you once again for this thing called Amazing Grace. In your name, amen. Real quick, turn to your neighbor and say, this is amazing grace. Hey, it's not about, this season's not about being good. Nothing about Jesus says it's about being good. It's about experiencing the grace that he offers. A couple things real quick before you leave. Number one, next week, remember it's Christmas. We're shifting to Sunday night or Saturday night. So we have celebrate Christmas next Saturday night right here, four and seven. Four and when? Four and seven o'clock. We have it's going to be tons of things. It's going to be an awesome experience. Invite your friends. Invite your neighbors. Four and seven o'clock next Saturday. Also, if you want to pick up my Christmas devotional, uh, we've got more, a couple more CDs left on that Get Connected wall. If not, go to that YouTube link. Don't look at it yet. Look at it Christmas morning, okay? Go to that YouTube link in your bulletin. And hey, blessings to you. Thanks for coming. We'll see you hopefully Christmas Eve, all right? Blessings.